Hello, everybody. Please take a seat. Uh, so happy to see all of you here. This is fantastic. Uh, I'm looking at our program today. I was very happy to be invited here. Data-informed solutions for youth voting and civic engagement. Yay. We love this. Something I've been following for so many years, hoping against hope everything is going to get better, and it is. We're looking at the numbers. Things are getting so much better. That's what we're going to talk about here today. Our first speaker is Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon, somebody that we're so happy to have here. Uh, he was elected in 2015, and ever since then, watching him from afar and up close, uh, I see that I'm a reporter for WCCO Television, so we, we, we spend a lot of time together, especially during elections. Um, he has had so many things to worry about, including election security, whether or not there's going to be foreign interference in our elections in the U.S. and here in Minnesota. Uh, he's also uh, had to keep our voter turnout number one in the nation, and that has got to be, am I wrong, Mr. Secretary, a lot of pressure to keep that going. And one of his special focuses uh, has been, ever since he was elected, increasing voter participation, particularly among youth voters. And looking at the numbers that we're going to talk about today, I got to say I'm surprised and pleased and gratified that all of this is happening. The more people vote, the better everything is. So we're going to start it off with uh, Secretary of State Steve Simon. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me today. I want to thank the Humphrey School. I want to thank Lead MN under the amazing leadership of Mike Dean, who you'll hear from later. I want to thank Circle and its executive director, Kay Kawashima Ginsburg, who I'll be introducing shortly. And of course, to political reporter extraordinaire, Pat Kessler of WCCO-TV for moderating today. So as Secretary of State of Minnesota, I like to say that I'm in the democracy business. And what a time to be in the democracy business, am I right? Uh, the last three or four or five years have been extraordinary, nothing short of extraordinary when it comes to all the issues that we're here to talk about and think about today. Um, and today, it just so happens, as many of you know, is the day after local elections in many communities around Minnesota. So it's fitting now that we look ahead to the 2020 election, and it will be intense, just like 2016 was intense. And 2016 was an intense election year, not only because it was a presidential election, we all know that those tend to be more intense affairs than the typical election, but it was an open seat presidential election. There was a lot of energy on both sides. There was no incumbent eligible to run for re-election. And there was something else. Another reason for that intensity the last time, the last presidential election was, and let me put this as diplomatically as I possibly can, I think it's safe to say that we had two major party candidates who inspired strong feelings. How's that? Is, that? is that just about diplomatic enough for you? They inspired strong feelings. What I mean by that in the vernacular is people either really, really liked one or really, really disliked the other or perhaps combinations of each. But very few people in late October of 2016, think about your own life, just gave a shoulder shrug as to both of them. 
How many people in your own circle, in your own life, as of, say, Halloween of 2016 said, you know, I really don't know how I feel about either one of them. I guess I have to do more research or reading. Nobody, right? Almost nobody. So that's one of the things that leads to intensity. Now, as uh, Mr. Kessler said, going into 2020, Minnesota has a reputation to defend. So by way of describing what that means, let me indulge in one of our favorite pastimes here in Minnesota, which is indulging in our Minnesota superiority complex. So when I took office in 2015, I challenged Minnesota to get back to number one in voter turnout nationally. We weren't then, but we once had been, and for a long time. So my challenge was to get us back there. We had been there, and we thought we knew what it would take. So we knew that part of that task would be focusing attention where we needed to focus it. And that was on communities, either geographic or demographic or otherwise, where we had room to grow and room to improve. And that included, of course, our youngest voters. No big secret, no big mystery. In Minnesota, as in every other place I'm aware of in the United States, younger voters tend to vote at lower rates than the rest of us. That's just a given, or it has been until recently. So we knew that it was really all about getting good habits started early. All the studies, all the literature, all the analysis shows, if you can get someone thinking about being a voter before they even are a voter or eligible to be a voter in their teenage years, they're much more likely to vote in that first election in which they are eligible at age 18 or 19 or 20. And then if you can get them to vote in that first election of eligibility, they are far more likely to make it a lifelong habit. So that is sort of the framework that we were looking at going into the 2016 election. So we decided to do some new and different and what we regard as fresh and innovative things. One of which was to start a statewide mock election program for high school students. It had never been done before. There were one-offs, there were individual high schools, of course, that do mock elections within the four walls of those schools, but they had never really been woven together. So our office, and I wanna give a shout out to Michael Wall of our office in particular, off to my left, who was sort of the mastermind of all this, we started something called Students Vote in 2016, which was simply a statewide mock election for President of the United States, just the one office. And at the time we thought, all right, no one's done this before. This is new. This is gonna seem, you know, uh, uh, sort of distinct to a lot of districts that haven't done this before. So let's shoot for 100 high schools. It's a nice round number, it's triple digits, it's memorable, let's make that our goal. 100 high schools in 2016. I'm here to tell you we did not get 100 high schools, we got close to 300 high schools that signed up in 2016 for a total of 96,000 ballots. And in 2018, when we did it a second time, we were up to 130,000 ballots that we printed, that we mailed to high schools throughout the state. But we didn't stop there, we went to colleges and universities, working with Mike Deed and Lead MN and other groups around the state we enhanced some of what had already been going on, thanks to Mike's leadership, and we started something called Minnesota Ballot Bowl, which was a contest uh, among colleges and universities to register students to vote. And we even got reports from four-year institutions, at least, um, that there were instances of college Democrats and Republicans collaborating. Imagine that. Imagine that, collaborating to get their school's totals up. And that too has been a really successful enterprise over the last uh, couple of election cycles. But another thing that we did underlying all that was we wanted to approach talking to young voters a little bit differently, even on the linguistic level, even in the way that we framed and characterized the need to vote. The idea was that there's gotta be something more than the typical eat your vegetables approach. 
that you should vote because it's the right thing to do. You should vote because it's expected of you. You should vote because you should be part of something larger than yourself. I agree and believe in all of those things. I'm not mocking them. I'm just saying that that alone can't be everything. We've got to augment and add to those things, not ditch them, but add to those things. And one of the ways that we can do that um, is just by the, the language that we use. So at the time that we were ramping up in 2016, we uncovered some literature that maybe some of the professionals and academics in here are, are familiar with, saying that even a word change can make a difference, at least at the margins. So if you talk to young people, but really everyone, but young people in particular, about voting as being something, not just doing something, not just an action, not just a rote exercise, but being something, not doing, but being, it can really have a difference. And I remember when we were ramping up for 2016, I told a friend of mine about what we were planning, that we were planning this language around being something, not doing something. And suddenly, a broad grin went across his face. A light bulb went off, and he said, wait, I love that. This is great. He said, I have a teenage daughter at home. From now on, I'm going to tell her, be a laundry folder <laughs> to see if that works. I don't know if it worked for him, but try that with friends and acquaintances at home. Be something, not do something. So we started to talk about be a voter, not just go vote, you should vote, please vote, but be a voter. Um, and, and, and even just linguistic turns of a phrase like that can, can make a difference. So I'll spare you all the details, but in 2016, having worked in our office with hundreds and thousands of partners, for-profit, non-profit, professional sports teams, colleges and universities, high schools, you name it. I'll spare you the details, but when the dust settled in 2016, that very, very intense elections, we got to our goal. We got back, Minnesota got back, to number one in the country in voter turnout. We were very pleased with that. Um, but as all of you know from your own lives, whether it's a job, whether it's a hobby, whether it's sports, whether it's anything else, the only thing harder than getting to number one is staying number one. So as Mr. Kessler mentioned, there was a lot of pressure going into 2018, right? We're number one, everyone's got their sights on us. So in 2018, we faced that pressure um, and we redoubled our efforts. And I'll spare you the details again, only to say that when the dust settled about a year ago in 2018, we did repeat. We got back to the top of the hill again, a second time in a row, Minnesota, two in a row, number one in the nation in voter turnout, which we're very happy about. But the icing on the cake, the cherry on the sundae, the thing that really warms our hearts, and one of the reasons we're here today to talk to you and learn from you, is that not only were we number one in the country overall, but according to the analysis done by Circle, whose executive director you're gonna hear from, we weren't just number one overall. Minnesota in 2018 was number one in youth voter turnout as well. And that really makes our hearts glad. So to give you the numbers in particular, uh, and these are voters ages 18 to 29. So 43.7%, according to Circle, voted in the 2018 election. That's up from the last midterm election in 2014 of 23.1%. So it went from 23.1% to 43.7% in the space of four years. Apples to apples, non-presidential to non-presidential. We'll see what happens next year. So now heading into 2020, the pressure is unbearable. Right, because we've been number one twice in a row. The eyes of the nation will be on us to try to make it a three-peat, to try to make it a hat trick, to try to do it three times in a row. And I think we can do that. Um, and I think we can repeat as champs for our youngest voters. So although we're proud of what Minnesota has done with young voters, we know, and all of us in this room know, that there is much, much more to do. 43.7% is great, but that means a majority of young voters, 18 to 29, are still not voting. 
So what, we can, what can we do about that general state of affairs? Well, I defer to others with a lot of expertise in this room on the question nationally, but in Minnesota, I have some thoughts. And here are my thoughts. The first is we can change some laws. We've got great laws on the books in Minnesota, really great laws. We have same-day voter registration. We have online voter registration. We have no excuses absentee voting. Those are great, but I would like to add to that list things like pre-registration for high school students. More than a dozen states have that. Some are red states, some are blue states, some in between. There's no political complexion or bias. But this means 16 and 17-year-olds could sign their name on a list. They wouldn't be registered. They would be pre-registered so that after all the security filters and checks are done, boom, on their 18th birthday, they are automatically in the system. Or what about automatic voter registration? a reform that is long overdue in Minnesota. Again, close to a dozen and a half states nationally of varying political hues have already adopted automatic voter registration. And despite its title, its sweeping sounding title, when you hear something like automatic voter registration, it connotes in your mind, I bet, as it did in mine, some sweeping upheaval of the system, something that's suddenly automatic that wasn't before. All it is in Minnesota is a tweak to what we already have. We have a motor voter law in Minnesota, which means, if you've noticed, that when you get or renew a driver's license in Minnesota, after you do all the other stuff, the eye chart test and all the rest, there is a document with a box on it towards the left side. Notice the next time you go in. And it simply says, check here if you want also to be registered to vote, because the same information that you're supplying for your driver's license is the very information required to register you to vote. So it asks you to opt in. It's a box that says vote here, or I'm sorry, check the box here if you want to be registered to vote. All that automatic voter registration would do, despite its grandiose title, is reverse the presumption on that box. Same DMV, same iChart test, same document, same box, only instead of check here if you want to be registered to vote, it would reverse the presumption to saying check here if you don't. We'll assume you do unless you tell us otherwise. That's all it means. And that would get a lot of young people into the system and at least registered to vote. Doesn't mean they will vote, but registered to vote um, at an earlier and earlier age. Um, the second thing I would talk about in terms of prescriptions for Minnesota just has to do with the culture. We need to, all of us, do a better job at explaining the rules. You know, we take for granted, we who are habitual voters, um, some of the nomenclature, some of the, the glossary terms, even a term like voter registration. To us, we know that's no big deal. You can do it in two minutes online. But to someone unfamiliar, typically young people, with that term, registration, what does that mean? It, it sounds ominous. Does it mean I have to bring a birth certificate? Does, is there writing involved? Is there spelling involved? What does that even mean? We should do a better job, and it starts with me in our office as well, with explaining what those rules are. Um, and, and even little things. We found with the mock election in our high schools that there were students that were pleasantly surprised, pleasantly surprised that voting was just darkening an oval. They had thought before this mock election that voting was something much more complex, that there was spelling involved or writing involved or recall of some kind involved. Now we all, I, I see the snickers and smiles on your face, we have been voting for years, say no, of course, that's absurd. That's all it is. But to someone who's 15 or 16 or 17, they didn't know that. And so this is an opportunity to tell them that really there's less here than meets the eye, not more, less. It's simpler, less complicated than you imagine it to be. And then the other thing I would say, culturally speaking, is we have to get away from the tired old stereotype that young people are just apathetic and disengaged. Um, that's not true. They are engaged. Uh, they're paying attention. They want their voices heard. They may not express themselves yet or fully through the ballot box, but we shouldn't mistake that fact for laziness. But there's one more thing, just one more. 
I think we need to address, among all ages, but particularly among young people, this idea, this concept that gets lodged in people's heads that elections don't matter. And it's there. We know it among people of all ages. So let's face it, there are people out there, particularly young people, who are not in a mood to vote no matter what laws we pass, no matter how easy we make it, because it's not about that for them. Um, some people are in no mood to vote because they're disillusioned already at age 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. They're disillusioned or even disgusted with politics, with politicians, with campaigns, with what is said, not said, with the gulf between what is said and what is done once somebody gets into office. And that is a tougher nut to crack. It really is. You can't legislate your way out of that. You can't sort of educate your way out of that in the sense of making the process easier and telling people where the rules are. All I can say is this. To young people in particular who are tempted to withhold their vote because of that disillusionment or even disgust, I would say this. I can't put it any better than the words I once saw on a t-shirt at a parade. And the words said, failure to vote is not an act of rebellion, it's an act of surrender. And particularly for young people, this idea that, look, you get a lot of things on your 18th birthday. Hopefully a slice of birthday cake, pat on the back, a few presents. You also get formal political power, formal political power. You've always had political power, but now it's formalized, it's recognized, it's, it comes with a constitutional seal of approval. You've got it, it's something of value. If you fail to use it, you're leaving it on the table, and as with anything else of value you leave on a table, someone's gonna swipe it. Someone's gonna swipe it. So don't give it up, don't leave it, don't surrender it. So I'm interested in learning from all of you, as are the other folks from our office, and we've got some great folks here uh, who are gonna educate us and I think inspire us. So speaking of not surrendering, it's my pleasure at this point to introduce um, Kay uh, Kawashima Ginsburg, the director of CIRCLE, the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at Tufts University, my alma mater in suburban Boston. Uh, as director, Kay leads all of CIRCLE's research activities while charting a vision of, of how that research can inform public policy and practice to strengthen youth civic engagement. She is particularly interested in providing various organizations and communities with research that would help increase civic and political engagement among ethnic minority and immigrant populations. Kay earned her doctorate degree in 2008 from Loyola University Chicago in clinical psychology and has extensive experience in working with youth of diverse backgrounds, both as a researcher and a practitioner. Prior to joining CIRCLE, Kay taught as visiting instructor of psychology at Knox College where she became involved as an active collaborator for the Center in Galesburg, a community-based citizen organization. In collaboration with the Center in Galesburg, Kay uh, designed a course in community psychology in which she taught college students about various types of engagement and actively involved them in the local community. Please join me in welcoming her to Minnesota and to the Humphrey School. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me, and it's really great to be back in Midwest. I always will be a transplant to East Coast. <laughs> I'm an immigrant to the United States, but I always thought of Illinois as my home. So thank you, and thank you for all the good work that's been happening in the state of Minnesota, in the city of Minneapolis, and then welcoming me here. It's a really a great honor to be here to talk about the work we do and how much the work we believe in aligns with what's happening in this community is astounding. It's really the vision of what we think every community should do and aspire to, so it's really good to be here. 
So what I want to talk about today is a presentation called Growing Voters Together. And it's really, really is what Secretary just said, literally, right? Talking about how we can expect young people to be a voice in the community, build expectations and the skills before they're 18, and not just talk to them about doing something, but being something. So we think about voting at Circle as something that's really important part of civic development. Of course, we think about civic engagement as much broader than voting, but at the same time, right now, voting is one of the most important key entry points to civic life, especially for just typical young people who are not in mobilizing or organizing or serving in a community board. That's 90% of young people. So that's really important. We care deeply about not just how many young people are voting, which we track meticulously, but also who's voting, who we're leaving out in any given election, and how they feel about participation. What do they think they're doing? Do they believe their votes matter? Those things are really important to us. And we think that if we can expand the electorate in a really meaningful and equitable way, we're really starting to think about a different future where people believe in their own power to drive our country through their voice and through their votes. And of course, election happens in every single community at some point. Right? And because of that, we think it can really equalize some of the opportunity gaps that we see, as I'll talk about in a minute. But let's celebrate first. The youth vote in 2018, by numbers, was astounding. It really shattered what I, as an expert in youth voting, as possible thing that can happen in a midterm cycle. We had seen youth turnout really below 20% in midterms for quite some cycles. It used to be closer to 25, 30% turnout, which was never good. And so, so those of you who are in a boomer generation who thought you were turning out at an amazing rate as a young people, it was never great for midterms. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it was really getting a little bit worse over the last few cycles. And the last cycle that we could record was 2014 for midterm election. And according to the voter file analysis we did, the turnout was 13%. So almost nobody that's under age of 30 was voting in midterms. This year, our estimation uh, suggests that it was about 28% turnout. And that represents a 115% increase in turnout from the last midterm cycle. So that's the first number, which is really worth celebrating. We also named 50 different congressional districts where we thought, according to the data, we could see young people affecting the outcome of the election. And of course, that really is our attempt to make sure broad range of stakeholders, including campaigns, know that young people matter. And there were a lot of movements in those 50 districts as a result of that. And 39 of those districts um, ended up electing a Democratic candidate. And this is, of course, in part due to how left-leaning young people are today. In 2018 election, 67% of young people supported the Democratic House candidate. And this was a huge youth wave to the left. And this was much greater lean than the 2008 election, when young people did support President Obama by a large, large margin. But when you look at the House races, it was not this split. It was more like 60% in 2008. And that was the highest recorded. So this was sort of the leftiest um, electorate who were young this year. 
And then in 31 of the states, out of 42 states where we can get the voter file data by age, there was increase in voter turnout by at least 10 percentage points. Again, these are the things that we've never seen in any place in midterms for a long time. So you have to recognize just how amazing this year was. And finally, there is a four percentage point increase in share of all votes that were cast by young people. What that means is essentially young people took back some of the influence that they were losing over time. So what we learned according to many, many kinds of research we did in 2018 circle, there are many things, but here's some summary here. So first is that we have to believe young people when they say we can do it um, and not force what we think is a conventional method of mobilizing young people or talking to young people. Young people are the experts of young people and we need to step back. And there's many, many stories that I heard from the veteran organizers about how young people said, we got this. And then they'll look down and kind of work on their phones in mass for five minutes and things were done. And they were amazed. Um, so different mode of working maybe, but we do need to believe young people. Second thing is that we saw amazing wave of young people leading, organizing, and youth-led movements, climate, gun violence, Black Lives Matter, all those things were led by many young people. And that, especially the Parkland shooting, unfortunately though, um, did put so much uh, spotlight to young people and so much young people were, uh, so many of the young people were registered to vote earlier in the cycle. So it was in the spring or early summer. And that made voter mobilization or get out the vote effort really much easier for many people who were involved because that put young people on the map or on the list. So young people were suddenly visible and that made it much, much more effective kind of mobilization where many more young people were hearing from campaigns, civic groups and organizers um, on like regular mid-time cycle. The third thing that seemed to matter is that young people aren't really, really satisfied with this two-party system or who's running all the time. Many people are, but a good third of them are unaffiliated. But at the same time, young people care deeply, deeply about what's happening to their communities, to the nation, and to the world. So issues really do matter, and that seems to have been a really the driving force of youth today. And finally, there were, as Secretary mentioned, laws um, and regulations that were passed that would really help young people, like automatic voter registration. Pre-registration has research backing up to say there's a long-term and positive impact of making sure young people have that pre-registration done, um, especially when they're still in high school and often living with parents, because the first time registration is really hard. Sometimes you need birth certificate, you need all the information that young people didn't think they needed to have. So that has been a really important part of this whole picture. The 2018 was an amazing year in so many ways, but we still have some issues here. We're still heavily relying on episodic get out the vote effort and registration effort where young people are asked to vote, not to be a civic actor necessarily, not to have a voice and not to have an influence, but they're often used as a hopeful commodity to win elections because they can turn out in large numbers and like I said, they're extremely left-leaning today. But that doesn't necessarily serve us on a long term because we're essentially telling young people, we need you to vote for this specific candidate or for this specific issue, but we're not really asking young people all the time what they really want. Because of that, sometimes that sort of transactional but not relational approach can actually alienate some of the most marginalized young people we already have today in our society that weren't going to vote 
and maybe will be less likely to vote because they maybe felt like they were using them, right? And that's not what we want to see. So with that, we have been thinking for now many years about switching or adding growing voters as a framework to think about voter engagement instead of just mobilizing young people. The way we think about this is a vision of a different future where young people from every zip code, every background, and every income class um, know that they have agency and influence in their community, their voice and their vote matters, and they have something to contribute to our civic society. And we think it takes not just the young people to gain the skills and knowledge and attitudes around voting and civic engagement, but multi-stakeholders that are communities, government, companies, sports teams, and that form the culture and expectations for young people to be involved from really early age. I even say that, you know, kindergartners need to know that they matter. They have a voice, and we can start that in kindergarten classrooms. And so that's how we think about growing voters. It's never too early to start, but it starts with building that expectation and culture and identity of civic actors. There are some systems-wide issues that we found through our research that still needs a lot of attention. The big one is really that currently, all the campaigns and groups that spend a lot of money on campaigns and election cycles only are investing on uh, so-called low-hanging fruits. Those are people with voter history before that are in some kind of institutions uh, like workplace, colleges and universities, civic organizations. Those are, of course, people that need to be talked to, but they're definitely not the only people that talk to. So when we think about the cost efficiency as a central principle for mobilization, we lose on expanding the electorate. We have been really working closely with some election offices, including here in Minneapolis, um, which has a really wonderful election team um, and really a leader in the form of really supporting young people and thinking really long-term about how to support voters of all backgrounds and all ages. Um, it's been really great learning experience for us because they're the model nationally. But we also know that not all local election administrators can do that. They don't feel like they can engage young voters. They don't feel like it's worth talking to young people. So we need to change that culture too and support all of these uh, local election administrators to feel like they can hear from young people. And then finally, we have to recognize that our society have suppressed a lot of people from uh, suppressed voters who are from certain backgrounds, some laws have been passed. It's been really difficult for some people to think about themselves as a voter or that they are welcome to participate in civic life. We have to acknowledge that and then really think about how to reach out to those young people and really take the time to turn around that belief system that gets established for a variety of reasons. We do see this in the voter turnout rates increase. So this shows the young people who have um, any college experience. So at least one day in college, that's the sort of a yellowish bar. And then young people who have never been to college who are under age of 30 who are eligible. We see the increase in turnout in 2018 for both groups. However, the rates of turnout was very different. The young people who have been to college increased turnout by 20 percentage points or so whereas those who did not go to college yet um, increased by 10, 11 points. So this cycle that had this huge mobilization actually expanded the gap between those two groups rather than shrinking that. So we're not quite there in terms of actually expanding the electorate. 
Second thing is that sometimes we find young people growing up with really no institutional touch. So it can be churches, it can be civic organizations, it can be youth programming. Especially in rural region of our country, we don't have many of those things going on. But if young people grow up with different models of leadership and different opportunities for civic engagement, they do grow that sense that they have a say in the community and they matter. When they don't though, then we call that civic desert. They have little to no access to these civic institutions. And what we find that is that young people growing up in a particular environment like that are not only less likely to vote and are civically engaged in many ways, but also are less likely to believe that people have the power, collectively or individually, to influence their community. And that's what we mean by we need to acknowledge this deep alienation and actually spend the resource to really think about how do we support these young people and touch them much earlier than their eligible age. Barriers to voting do begin way before age 18, including things like just not having great civic education. You'll hear me talk about that elsewhere over and over and over. But really, if we don't make sure we have deep understanding of our political structure, history of the United States, and how they develop a civic identity through school, we're not doing a good job. We have many opportunities that are available to some young people to be civically involved, but not the others. We also, of course, have a lot of young people feeling like their votes don't matter, they don't know enough, nobody cares what they think. Again, those are societal problems, but we need to change that. One of the things that's been a really major barriers in the past for voting is actually peer norms against voting. So there's a lot of talks in young people's uh, clicks about, you know, voting doesn't matter, I live in Massachusetts, voting doesn't matter, Democrats always win, or my vote doesn't matter, or my vote, you know, all that. But that seems to be actually changing. And that's one of the things that we noticed in the cycle in 2018 is that the youth organizers who were usually organizing around issues started to really explicitly connect voting to social movement and change. So they're now saying, instead of just saying, sit in or do the marches or protests, but they're also saying, but we need to elect the right leaders who have the priorities our back. So that's really important. Um, youth civic engagement opportunities, though, should be four of these things. So it should be visible, understandable to young people. It should always have youth voice in the design from the beginning, not just get the youth input at the later point, but always have young people at the table. It should be meaningful. It should be something that matters to their development as a person into adulthood, it should be issues they care about, and then it should be welcoming. Even if you're a new person that's never done something civic, we should be always have something that they can do, and we need to be really actively looking for that, not just asking experts and veterans to do the civic work, because we have to start somewhere. And finally, I really think about ecosystem as something that can really promote growing voters as a community, as a state, or as a nation. One of the important things about this ecosystem approach is that we can't rely on any one person, president for example, or any one secretary to get the voter turnout up. We have to do it together. We can do that through school. Like I said, elementary school can start that. 
we can think about how the local government can be playing active roles in promoting civic engagement from all kinds of people in the community, not just uh, people that can raise their hands up first. There can be also nonprofits who are not, maybe not traditionally civic organization, you know, like YMCA's, for example, or social service agencies have been doing a lot more voter engagement work that's nonpartisan, but coming from the messenger from their own community, right? If you're talking about, you know, coming to your neighborhood gym and then your front uh, desk person says, hey, have you registered to vote? It's coming up in two months, it's a month deadline. That's a very different message than having somebody call you through a robocall and then say, hey, I work for so-and-so's campaign, did you register to vote? I really want you to vote for that person. So that's been shown to have a positive impact as well. And then finally, we're really not utilizing enough of other parts of our civic life, like companies, workplaces, and also local media, to really think about how can we tell young people that they are important, and also hear from young people how they're doing the work in the community. I think there can be more features of the young people. So that's how I think about growing voter system. And like I said, you guys live in like the best state for this. <laughs> you really have many, many aspects of this ecosystem. So this may sound like, oh yeah, of course we do that, it's right here, but it's really not at all the reality in the rest of the country. So this is what I hope in 10 years maybe, we can be doing that in every community. So that's where I will conclude, and thank you so much for attention. I'm always uh, fascinated by this, and particularly, uh, I, I was a little bit humbled yep. because when I was a kid in the 70s, uh, we thought, ah, oh, we're doing it. We, you know, <laughs> we are, we are going to change the world. And I think we did a little bit, mm -hmm. but I'm shocked to hear that I was wrong about uh, voter turnout. We didn't vote. We did not vote. You talked an awful lot about the psychology of what a voter is. Mm -hmm. Be a voter, as the Secretary said, as you've said. It's the psychology of turning it around at an early age. Why does psychology matter in this, the psychology of it? Because it really is part of who we are as an identity, and collectively we change culture. So if we think about how young people think of themselves, they're going to have uh, assumption that they have to vote, of course, because they have a voice, they are citizens, and they are civic actors. So that mindset is a basis of habits. Without that mindset, we can't form a habit. So it's like same as diet and exercise, you know, like sure. I can try to eat well and quit eating meat and all that, but if I don't actually have a mindset that this is for climate change or this is my ethical, moral decision making, that diet's not going to stick with me. So the same with voting, if we just tell them every couple of years, vote, it's not going to be a habit. We have to change who they are, not what they do. Is there a psychology of disillusionment also? And I'm gonna connect here, civics and politics mm -hmm. and how we do it and what we see for young people in particular. I know a lot of young people 
are disillusioned by what they see today. Is there a connection, and how do you break it? You know, that's interesting you say that because usually, so cynicism is one of the things we look at as a potential depressor of voting because they're disappointed, they feel like nothing will ever change, right? That's kind of what you're talking sure. about. Um, we worry about that. So we did ask about that in our survey this year where we surveyed about 3,000 young people under age 25. This year, there was a correlation that was positive between cynicism and voting. So what seems to be happening is that young people can get angry and a little bit pissed off about what's not happening in Washington, D.C. When young people don't feel agentic or they don't feel powerful enough collectively, they, they stay home. They feel like, well, why, why matter? I don't, I don't want to vote. But if they feel like, you know what, collectively together we can change who we put up in the Washington or in our state legislature, then they actually turn that anger into action. So that's what we And is that change. new? Is that something new? It doesn't happen that you've all seen the in the time. research. Yeah, so that was somewhat surprising. We did expect that the cynicism would probably make voting less likely. Yeah, we were uh, wrong. And when you couple that with uh, what we see with uh, with the political parties of voter suppression, mm -hmm. uh, trying to get people not to vote, then that's one more <laughs> impediment, I guess. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, another thing to add to this sort of cynicism to voting connection is that it mattered even more if young people felt like they were part of something bigger, like social movement that were issue-based. So if they felt that they had a political home, they were doing something bigger to change society, the cynicism didn't matter. They could still go vote because voting is just part of who they are. Sure. There's a bigger goal, right? If it's just voting and they did not belong to sort of a political home, then they actually were less likely to vote. And I'm going to stay on this just for one more sure. question, if I might. And if anybody has questions, uh, the, I, I think we're going to pass yeah. them up to me. Yes. Uh, this past uh, election, which surprised me, the number of people surprised me. Your research was heartening and surprising at the same time. I was very uh, interested to see this. But back in 2018, as I recall, there were uh, many, many issues happening around the country, including uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, we had police shootings. Uh, we had uh, gun violence at the high schools that tended, it appeared, to motivate people. Yeah to one party, or, or more to one party than another, mm -hmm. though. Yeah. So that is, uh, that, that's what you're talking about, linking the two. Yeah, and that's true. We did see that having any affiliation with movement, both kind of a conservative side or the progressive side, did motivate voting. But that effect was much stronger for sort of democratic-leaning movement youth. So there were young people, plenty of them, that associate with Make America Great Again, for example, or pro-life movement. Um, they did vote more than those who did not have any affiliation, but it was more by like maybe 10 points, 9 points, whereas young people who associated themselves with climate change movement, for example, were 25 percentage point more likely to vote than those who didn't. So there well, was a big Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point because yeah. you it doesn't have to be the politics, liberal, moderate, conservative. Uh, it can be the pro-life movement, it can be climate change, mm -hmm. it can be Black Lives Matter, it can be any one of these to motivate young people, yeah. and it's all good, uh, which, whichever way they go. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let's take a couple of questions from the audience here, a lot of great ones. Uh, what role, if any, should groups such as League of Women Voters play in engaging youth voters? Uh, generally, League members, as me sitting up here uh, today, not a League member, but I'm a man of a certain age, proud of it, happy, but we're well past our youth. Um, so, I am, you know. 
But my future is so great. My future is so bright. I love who I am. So what about that? Thank you for that question. So any organizations like League or anybody else that has a lot of chapters and great groups of volunteers are one of the biggest assets to expanding the electorate. Because like I said, there are communities where there isn't a lot of civic opportunities that are baked in through organizations that touch young people regularly. That's when an organization like League in particular can go and add that capacity. So I know that they sometimes bring voter machine to high schools. And that's huge because many young people grow up not knowing anybody that vote. So going to the polls can be a really scary, uncertain experience. And then you know somebody of certain age can come in to say, voting isn't scary, it's easy, this is what it looks like, I'll show you. And that is a really important mentoring experience that many young people need. You mentioned something that struck me uh, in your presentation and had to do with a civic desert. We hear in uh, many parts of the country we have food deserts in certain parts of mm -hmm. cities and also rural areas. But a civic desert, I'm a kid from a farm in northwestern Minnesota, a town of 229 people, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't remember anybody getting us engaged in that way. So question from the audience, how do you define civic desert and and don't schools and other social points like churches don't they provide that civics lesson that young people need yep so we try to diversify what kind of institutions we count as kind of a key institution and also use some statistical technique to make sure that actually bear it out so we looked at kind of regular attendance to church, existence of early child pro program in the community, youth programming, college and the universities, and arts and culture. That's kind of five different types of organization that can get young people in, and also present in different communities. And the way we define civic desert was that young people have zero or one access to five of these. So with that, you know, the way we defined conceptually is that they either have sort of none of those key institutions or have one sort of monolithic type of organization or opportunity so that they're not essentially exposed to different models of running meetings or different models of decision making and leadership. And we think that variety, like diet, is important. It's the same as news. You don't want to hear the same talk over and over, same topic, but you want to see different things so that you can start to understand how different people do their civic business differently. And so with that, we thought that if they have little or just a no access at all, they would be more vulnerable to messages that are empty promises or they might be really apathetic about participating at all because they haven't been given that opportunity to have agency and voice yet. I know that at the Minnesota legislature there are bills to reinstate civics as a required class uh, in high schools. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm gonna point over to the Secretary of State because there are many schools who have dropped those. Is that, isn't that accurate? So many schools have done that, dropped it. And, the, and it, what do you find around the country? So that has been the trend for the past three decades or so, and that has, of course, gone along with a stronger and stronger emphasis on English and language arts and mathematics and science. Of course, they're important. There's no question about it. They're more directly connected to jobs, so they think. However, civics has been coming back a bit 
Um, there's a lot of states, I mean, I would say about 10 to dozen states that have passed pretty strong civic education law, sometimes starting in middle school. Some of them have even incorporated ways to make sure there's a project-based civics in the kind of, of course, of the curriculum. Uh, Massachusetts, for example, is one of the latest states to pass this, and we have now one year requirement in middle school. They have to have at least two student-based student, -based student uh, civic project. There's even thing about voting challenge within high school, so we put in a lot of stuff in education law. Yeah. I'm gonna push back on a couple of things here that uh, I was thinking about while, why, while we were listening uh, to your wonderful presentation, and it had to do with uh, the students that are turning out now and what causes they are turning out for. Mm -hmm. And there's a really, I think, insightful uh, question from the audience, Ed, a little bit edgy, but uh, still very insightful. Uh, let's be honest, uh, this questioner says, the Secretary of State uh, is a partisan position, and how many college students are conservative? And this person is estimating 20%. So growing youth voting is helping Democrats more than Republicans, according to this person. Number one, is that true? Uh, is that a valid question? It is a valid question, but I think data would probably refute that. So at least until about 2000, 2002, young people were completely evenly split in terms of partisan choice for house races, 50-50. And there were times right before that where there were more Republican young people. So it wasn't that long ago. This is only a recent trend. And it, I think, goes more than um, just young people thinking the Democrats are better. It's more that because they're more diverse as a generation. They have experience as being an immigrant child. They're having more and more experience as a person of diverse background or have really close friends who might have all, you know, different gender identities on themselves. So those experiences of friends and families themselves make them perhaps more uh, favorable in favor of more progressive politics. So that's one thing. But I think we should not assume this is always gonna be the case. There's also huge variations by demographics within the college population on how we think they vote. Um, there's a big partisan split by men and women, for example. In our survey, three quarters of young women said they were gonna vote for a Democratic candidate, and about half of young men said that. And this is under 25, the youngest that you think is the most you know, really progressive population, but it's more even than one thinks, and so is the college population. I am old enough to remember uh, President Ronald Reagan. Anybody here? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and as I recall, uh, traveling uh, with uh, then Governor Reagan when he was running for president, there was uh, a tremendous youth movement, uh, and it was exciting, and it was the young people coming out for Ronald Reagan, which helped propel him to the presidency, yep. and rebuilt the Republican Party uh, after the, the, the scandals of the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is, is that just my imagination, or was it actually happening, and then does it, do, do the Democrats pick up a little more after that? Yeah, young people have always been pivotal. I think, you know, what I would love to see from parties is the long-term building of their base. It's, of course, parties have their own self-interest and they, 
they should be free to try to build their bases. But right now, I think a lot of the outreach has been more transactional than building membership, building identity, and having that kind of local bond with other party members. That's another thing that's no longer really available to a lot of party members. There were a lot of meetings, there were a lot of gatherings about people and local issues, even with major parties, both Republicans and Democrats. Now it's sort of a national entity that come in whenever they need to, and that's different, and the young people don't see real value in that. So neither of the parties doing really great. What about lowering the voting age to age 16, as mm -hmm. one of our yep. questioners asked. Uh, they, if they're old enough to drive a car, why not be able to vote? Why not even be able to run for a local office, the library board, the city council, something like that? Yeah, what I does your research show there? Sure, so the research does show that in terms of neurological or brain development, 16-year-olds are just as good as 19 to 21-year-olds in terms of being able to retain information, being able to process information, and making decisions. As long as it's not this flash decision, that is not voting. Um, the kind of the voting uh, decision making that's not quite there for 16 year old are things that you know. Like when in the moment, are you impulsive? Those are the things that are a little bit different for teenagers, but in terms of voting, they're ready. I think there is a lot of assumptions about how young people are mature or not, but of course we know in reality there's a huge variations for any given age. I know 40 year old who should not be voting if maturity is an Boy, issue. Boy, isn't that the right? truth? So, so I don't think we should necessarily set the 18 as an arbitrary thing and you know, pretend that there's a science behind that. There is not. Uh, yeah, that's uh, truer words. <laughs> have never been spoken. Well, how do we get uh, to, to actually make civic education part of a small town like I'm from, mm -hmm. Hitterdahl, Minnesota, that's where I live nearby, uh, and how do we engage people like that? We, I, I know as a, as a farm kid, the, the, the leaders of our community were always worried about the kids leaving, uh, not being engaged, and then as soon as they were 18, they graduated from high school, they're gone. So what do you do? So we have experience in rolling out civic education law as researchers in the state of Illinois, which has a mix of very urban places and very rural small towns. And you know, we saw every social studies teachers who had to adopt different methods of teaching civics, and that was really hard for them. And what ended up happening, though, is that the even rural teachers who were very skeptical in the beginning saw different lights in students' eyes once they started to do in different kinds of civics. They were engaged in discussions about local issues they care about. It could have been not just sort of things that you think are young people issue, like police camera, but in rural areas, they tend to be things like land use. How are we you know, conserving our rivers? How are we doing with the cleanup of our community? How are we keeping you know, our talents in our community? Those are the issues that young people actually cared about. And when they're given opportunity to research those issues, think about policies, and think about what they can do within their communities. Teachers saw the value of giving young people voice and actually believing young people. So I think there are always benefits to that. I think the key is that we don't have one model that would work in every community. We should never think about that, but really to think about what is a local community's assets already, and then what can education complement so that the young people actually learn to love their community, take responsibility, um, not necessarily to have a specific goal, like how do we keep sure. young people in the community, but I think it will happen naturally more and more. And we have uh, many other questions uh, like this, and I hope you can stay afterwards and perhaps uh, talk to Dr. K. Uh, but I do want to ask one more question before we bring up our student panel, uh, and that is, 
what if for all of us here, what do you think the the most important thing we could do right now, leaving here, what, what can we do that would be number one to increase this? That's hard. <laughs> I think, you know, anything you can do to change expectations about young people. So it could be at your party and holidays, talk to your family and friends about what they really think about young people doing things in the community, leading movements. And you'll hear a lot of skepticism, I think, from a lot of adults, even from young people sometimes. I think we need to change that at the interpersonal level to say, you know, young people really deserve the chance to be believed. They made things happen in last cycle, and they can too again. And I think that changes a lot of things, not just belief, but when you change hearts, it changes minds and systems, importantly. It'll change laws, and it'll change who we elect. Those are important things. Dr. Kay, thank you so much uh, for being here today. This, this is a thank fascinating you. work. Fascinating. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, we'd like to bring up some real youth. Uh, this is the future, of course. Uh, can you come on up here, and I'll introduce you as you come up, uh, Priscilla, Manali, and Sean. Come on up, and we'll sit right over here. And Dr. Dr. Kay will stay with us. Uh, just to talk about your work and what you do. Uh, Priscilla is vice president of LEAD Minnesota. She's a student at North Hennepin on my left here, uh, the North Hennepin Community College. She's had the opportunity to develop leadership skills, as you can see, these three young people here, uh, which led to her position at LEAD Min. She's currently studying to get an accounting degree from the University of Minnesota Crookston, my neck of the woods, that's where I'm, right up there. Uh, Priscilla has a passion for civic engagement. She believes that if everyone is actively engaged and plugged in, we can create powerful change that, that benefits everybody. So welcome Priscilla first. And who do I have next to Priscilla is Sean. Uh, Sean is the lead UMTC organizer at the Minnesota Youth Collective. He is a sophomore studying environmental science and political science at the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities, a first-generation Malaysian-American from Roseville, Minnesota. He, like everyone, uh, believes in real political change. It happens from the bottom up. We have to empower young people. Welcome, Sean. Uh, Manali is a senior, a senior in uh, English and political science, a double major. Wow, scared of you. Here we go. You're going to be great. Uh, English and uh, political science, double major from Shakopee, Minnesota. Uh, she's currently the co-president of the Gustavus Student Senate and is serving on the Gustavus Committee to prepare a voter registration plan for the 2020 elections. So uh, welcome, Manali, please. <laughs> So, uh, let, Priscilla, let me start with you. Uh, did what you hear make sense? Did it talk to you? Did it speak to you? Uh, what are we hearing? What should we be hearing? Um, yeah, it really spoke to me. I really liked when you pointed out the fact that we need to start talking to young people what they care about and not just telling them to go out and vote. Um, and I've felt that as someone who comes from um, a community of color, I, am, I come from an immigrant community, I see that often where people stay back because they don't see you know, interest in what they care about. And so when you're telling people to vote, they get it. They understand that it's great, yeah, I know, whatever. 
but it's <laughs> like this candidates, this people, they're not really talking or touching on what I care about. And so what is the point then? Um, and so I really, really um, enjoyed that part. I enjoyed the whole talk, but I really enjoyed that part of it um, in the sense that it really spoke to like where I'm coming from. And Sean, is there something that's happening with your friends that is engaging? What are you doing to engage them? A lot of what I'm doing is essentially using social media to reach out to people who might not know that election day is coming up or might not know who's on the ballot. So really using tools that our generation is familiar with and using that to kind of reach out to people who aren't as engaged and get them engaged in the pot. Talk the a little bit more about that, if you would, Sean, the, the social media part of this, uh, that it's a whole different world uh, than, than it was yeah. going door to door, making people write on a piece of paper. Does that actually work? It does, yeah. Getting uh, voters out to vote by going door to door does a lot. But so does posting a I voted sticker on your <laughs> Apple after you voted, posting that onto Instagram or using channels like Snapchat and posting posts um, to kind of just remind people. Um, on election day yesterday, everyone I know posted a picture of their I voted sticker if they voted on the day of election day. People who early vote remind others to early vote and it really just gets people um, just engaged and if people forget and it's 6 p.m. and they see a post because they log into their account, they see it, they'll drive to the polls, yeah. Wow. Um, Manala, you are preparing a voter registration drive for uh, Gustavus. Uh, is it for Gustavus for the college? Yeah. That's a yeah, big deal. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? How do you start that and what's your goal? Yeah, um, so uh, with Gustavus, we've done this for the 2016 election and 2018 election. We saw great success um, with it. We saw a huge like voter, voter turnout from 2014, actually, to 2015 with 54% of our campus um, voting, which was really great. Um, and so how we do this is basically try to inform students about um, who's on the ballot, basically, with like voter education guides. Um, I think that's very helpful and very insightful for students to read and um, it's very informative as well to give students an idea of who are they voting for so then they can become interested in um, participating on the ballot too. You know for any one of you, uh, one of the things Dr. K said is that one of the obstacles to voting is when young people feel disillusioned. Do you see that? And, and if you do, what is it they're disillusioned about? Do you see that in your work? Any, anybody? I, okay. Um, yes, there's definitely people who are very disillusioned with the way things are. First of all, they see a lot of, um, like when people, when young people look into who is running, they see older people. Um, there's already this idea of like older people don't care about what younger people want. So there's, first of all, that step. And then second of all, you see the issues, again, back to the issues they're talking about, is if uh, they're watching debates. Because I've had, when I did this 2018, and I spoke to some people about, oh, these are the candidates running. They're like, oh, I watched or I listened to some of the things they had to say. And they were asked this question that I care about, and they just brushed off on it. 
And so it's just little things young people notice. Young people see it. We don't think they do. We don't think it matters. But they see and they're watching. And so when you come up to a young person who you might not consider as civically engaged or civically active, but they're following on this stuff, they're going to tell you, okay, I don't care. Like, this, this is not important to me. And I know he gave a, the Secretary of State gave a, you know, quote about like, you know, you're surrendering or whatever. And as much as that's great, that doesn't also touch on the fact that people are not really, really speaking to students or speaking to young people. And at the end of the day, that's where we lose them. Are, are they are disillusioned, uh, for any of you, uh, are they disillusioned because the candidates are not speaking to what they believe? Or are they disillusioned with the tone, with the rhetoric, uh, with all the negativity that we see uh, today? Um, I don't even think it's being disillusioned with any party or candidate. I think it's being disillusioned with the system. So historically, if the status quo doesn't give you a seat at the decision-making table, you don't have an incentive to participate because the system is rigged against you. So essentially, we're trying, Minnesota Youth Collective is trying to break down the barriers to being able to participate in our democratic process by empowering young people to take their own seat at the decision-making table and investing in the leadership of young leaders across campuses, in high schools, um, who are leaders in their own right. And, and what does that mean? Uh, running for office in the school, running for office on the city council in your local town, what, what does that mean? It means fundamentally investing in le the leadership of young people, not particularly running for office, but organizing. So giving them opportunities to lead, to organize on their campuses, in their schools, having fellowship cohorts. This past summer, Minnesota Youth Collective had its first um, summer fellowship cohort where we got 11 young, bright people into a program that was an 11-week intensive program that really trained them on all things organizing. So how do you um, get people engaged? How do you organize on a grassroots level and everything in between? Manali, how about you? you yeah, um, so going along with that, I think that um, a lot of students and young people don't feel like politics has a direct impact in their life. Um, they start to see it in more of a short-term sense as this isn't going to impact me, so why should I care? Um, so that is what we're trying to do with the voter education on our campus is to show that it really does matter and your voice does um, have an impact. And we have tried to make voting even accessible um, by having shuttles that um, go down to the polling stations as well. So for a lot of students, it's the transportation. They don't have access um, to a car that'll take them to, um, to a polling station. So that's why we have tr um, used our sen student senate funding to um, provide free, free transportation on the day um, of election day. Does it matter what the candidates are promising uh, in the presidential race to appeal to college-age youth, for example, free public tuition, paying off student debt? Does that motivate, does that even motivate the people you work with? I think it does. Um, I do know that a lot of students struggle with finances, um, especially with this day and age, um, with financial aid and scholarships. So when candidates talk about those issues, I believe that when students feel like it's personally impacting them and they um, feel like their voice is being heard and that the candidate really cares about their concerns and um, their well-being and their success for the future, um, that motivates them to also get involved. Is it invest in leadership. Is it odd to you at all that 
Uh, the top candidates for president uh, in the Republican and Democratic Party are all over 70, the age of 70. <laughs> I mean, what does, that, what does that say to you? What does that do for you? Um, I think that age itself shouldn't matter as long as they are speaking to the um Age the is just a number, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't think that age matters as long as their um, voice is, is representative of the people that um, who are asking of, uh, to care about young students and younger people, you know? So um, we see candidates like Bernie Sanders, um, the reason why he does appeal to a lot of younger people is because he is taking the time to invest and care about them and connect with students like, um, with the whole uh, free tuition and um, understanding where they're coming from. Our, our all of you, any of you, each of you, are you optimistic about the future when you look at the economy, when you look about the direction of the country? Where are you? Are you optimistic, Priscilla? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yes and no. Um, I'm optimistic that things will get better. I'm optimistic that younger people, because now they're, they're more participation, from younger people of various backgrounds. So there are more people participating from um, immigrant communities, which I think is a huge um, participation that we're seeing from there. So I'm optimistic that they will bring those ideas in the future, in the far future, to the country to help improve stuff. I'm not optimistic in the near future, so two, three years from now, because there's not a lot that is showing us what's going to happen. It's very up in the air right now for me, and that's the way I see it, um, especially, again, for the community that I come from and that I sure. represent. I, it's not super optimistic, but I know in the far future, 20 years from now, I can see something happening. Well, you're going to be running things. Yes, you will. hopefully. <laughs> Especially you three. Yeah. A yes. quick answer to, to that from both of you, and we're going to wrap up this segment. Uh, Sean, are you optimistic? Um, I am optimistic, and I always have been, always will be. I believe that if we want fundamental change to the way that politics happens in this country and the way that young people, um, what their role is in politics, we need to fight for it. So, mm -hmm. yes, I'm optimistic, but... It's going to be hard, but it'll be worth it to fight for what we want and our role in the political process that we know that we deserve. And yay or nay, how about you? Yeah, um, mirroring off the um, previous speakers, I also feel optimistic. Um, like Priscilla said, not really in the near future, just because I feel like so much has happened in these last three or four years where it's hard to go back. Um, it's hard to um, think of a time when um, our political system was just very respectful or like, um, you know, considerate of other backgrounds. But um, yeah, coming from the background that I come from, um, a community of color, so it can be a bit difficult to be optimistic and to see like if there's better opportunity. But I do think that this election, especially the 2020 election, has opened a lot of young people's eyes as to what we could actually do if we actually turn out and um, get out the vote. So I do feel optimistic in that sense. Well, I am optimistic uh, for having these people here and who are going to be running everything and just be here. Thank you. Thank you so much to everybody on stage. We're going to 
we're going to move on to another uh, another part of the program. Uh, and this this reminds me of of this of the great uh, Democratic Congressman uh, Elijah Cummings uh, died over the last couple of weeks, and and uh, somebody that I always looked up to. And 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 he said at one time that our children are the witness to the future that we will never see. And that's what you guys are. And I'm so proud to have you here. And thank you again for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Now, now Michael Dean. Mike Dean is the executive director of Lead Men, the Minnesota State College Student Association, working to develop Minnesota's next generation of civic and business leaders. Thank you for that. Uh, working on behalf of 180,000 students uh, that attend uh, Minnesota's community colleges, uh, Leadman enhances leadership skills to develop personal success and drive community-wide change. And what we've seen today is exactly what's happening. Thank you for all the work you do. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Dean. Great. Thank you very much, Pat. Um, Today we're here to celebrate Minnesota as a national leader uh, for youth and student voter engagement. Alita Men actually just released a report today uh, that found that 115,530 Minnesota university and college students voted in the 2018 election at a rate of 47.6% of eligible students turned out. Uh, this data is based upon the National Study for Learning, Voting, and Engagement based out of Tufts University, Secretary Simon's alma mater. Um, this is actually the most comprehensive and accurate look at student voter turnout, and it compares campus enrollment records uh, submitted to the National Student Clearinghouse with the Minnesota voter file. Uh, this data shows that Minnesota is building a strong civic culture by implementing key strategies in the growing voters framework that Kay talked about earlier. So our report looks at student voting data at the state and campus by campus levels. Uh, it's that data that we used to launch a new uh, award this year called Minnesota's Democracy Cup. Uh, this is sponsored by the Minnesota Secretary of State's office, along with LEADMN, to recognize colleges and universities for helping students use their voice in the voting process. This is the inaugural year of this uh, award, uh, and actually marks a transition. You heard Secretary Simon talk about this earlier uh, from what was called the uh, ballot bowl. That ballot bowl recognized campuses that registered the most number of students. Uh, but we're moving now to this Minnesota Democracy Cup, uh, really which is gonna be based upon which institutions actually have the highest voting rate using that NSOLVE data. So without further ado, I wanna bring forward our first award. Uh, so this will be for the Minnesota Public four-year university with the highest 2018 student voting rate. And the winner is the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus. Jude, do you want to come on forward? So it's an impressive trophy here. So you can put that in the trophy next to the National Football Championship this year, right? Great, thank you very much, you. Congratulations again. It, it was actually a really close um, uh, contest this year. A Metropolitan State University was less than one percentage point behind uh, the U of M Twin Cities here. 
Uh, we hope that this uh, friendly rivalry continues into 2020. Um, our second award is for a public two-year community and technical college that had the highest 2008 voting rate for students. And the winner for this award is Normandale Community College. Joshua, you want to come forward? Great, congratulations. Um, I also want to mention that we'll be recognizing a private four-year college uh, for the highest voting rate as well. Unfortunately, we're still getting the data from uh, NSOLVE, and so we won't be able to award that today, uh, but we'll be awarding that in the new future, and that will be part of this award going forward. Uh, and then finally, we also want to recognize the institution that the most improved from 2014 to the 2018 election. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, we're going to have to reuse the same trophy here, but <laughs> I promise the trophy is going to be in the mail. Uh, we will ship it out somehow, um, but that will be coming forward. Um, and so to the campus that improved the most uh, was Minneapolis College. Could you come forward, Ben? <laughs> so they actually improved their voting rate by 29.6 percentage points, which is astounding. They, in 2018, they almost had a higher voting rate than the 2016 presidential election, which, as you may know, very rarely uh, ever happens. Uh, and the U of M was actually just shortly behind them. Uh, the University of Minnesota was at 29.0%. So they won by 0.6 percentage points. So congratulations, Ben. I want to congratulate all the winners and the students uh, who were democratically engaged throughout this process. I especially want to thank all our sponsors, particularly here at the University of Minnesota uh, Center for Study of Politics and Governance for being our host today, uh, Minnesota Youth Collective, of course, Secretary Simon for your amazing leadership on engaging our young people in this most important uh, process, and then, of course, Kay uh, for her wisdom and all the research she's done to really advance this uh, area forward. Uh, so we look forward to seeing you all again. We'll be doing this award in two years uh, after we look at the results of the 2020 election. So thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome to join us for refreshments to continue the conversation. Thank you very much.